Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this hour-changing world podcast from RNZ. The good news is that if you're in your 20s, your muscles are probably the strongest they'll ever be. The bad news is it's all downhill from there. Although you might not start to notice that you're not as strong as you used to be until you hit your 50s. And by the time you're in your 70s and 80s, many of us will be very frail indeed. There's a special word for this. Sarcopenia. A word that literally means poverty of the flesh. Lack of weight-bearing exercise is one cause of muscle wasting, and another is just old age. The question of what exactly is going on with our muscles as we age is one that intrigues University of Otago neuroscientist Phil Sheard. As we get older, the main driver that results in people transitioning from dependence to independence is frailty. And frailty is, is a global term that encompasses many things, the major one of which is musculoskeletal weakness. So that's deterioration of the bones and deterioration of the muscles. So people tend to become weak, and as they become weaker, they lose their capacity to do the things to look after themselves that they've done their whole lives. So you can imagine relatively frail older people who can no longer lift themselves out of the bath or who can no longer carry their groceries from the car up their front steps into the house. Or they're prone to falls, perhaps. And they're prone to falls, that's right. So a major cause of, of morbidity amongst older people is, is falls. And the major cause of falls is weakness. So... What we want to know is, is why and how do we become weak? Phil says that we start to lose muscle strength in our late 20s, although we may not realise how much we've lost until we're in our 50s. It's clearly a degenerative biological process, and because you think of it as being something that affects primarily the muscles, then it's reasonable to go to the muscles first and say, what's wrong with my muscles? Can you just explain to me what a muscle is? So if you imagine a muscle as a, as a box of straws that are hollow tubes, so a muscle fibre would be one straw in that box and a muscle would be the whole box of straws, a collection of them. Each of those one muscle fibres has within it a specific set of proteins whose job it is, once they're activated, is to make physical force. It's not a single cell. Muscle fibres are made during development by many individual pre-muscle cells joining together to make one very, very, very big long tube that runs for a part of the length of the muscle as a whole. So muscles as a whole can be in humans half a metre long. You're gesturing at your upper leg. I'm gesturing at my thigh, and so my thigh muscles might be half a metre long. So there's a tendon that connects the muscle to the bone at each end, but between the tendons we've got a a complex network of muscle fibres. In general, they don't run the whole length of the muscle. They have complex anatomical arrangements that allows the fibres themselves to be relatively short. The bigger the tube is, so if you think of that as the calibre of a straw, a big fat straw that you might get to drink something thick would be a strong muscle fibre and a skinny straw that you might use to drink lemonade would be a weak muscle fibre. So what's happening with our muscles as we get older? Why do they shrink and lose their strength? Phil has been investigating this in mice and he says that there used to be two possible explanations. 
One is that whole muscle fibers might die. So that is, you might have, when you're 20 years old, 100,000 fibers in a muscle, and by the time you're 60, that might be down to 60,000 muscle fibers. And the more muscle fibers you take away, the fewer you've got and the weaker the muscle would be. So that's one theory. That's one theory. And the second theory is that irrespective of whether or not you lose any muscle fibers, the muscle fibers that you've got might shrink. I no longer think that fiber death is a significant contributor to age-related loss of mass. That leaves fiber shrinkage. So the question then that we come to is, well, all right, if fibres are shrinking, is it all fibres or is it some fibres? And if it's some fibres, what's different or special about them? And is it the muscle's fault or are they innocent victims in this complex play? Well, so the answer to those questions are that it, in general it's some fibres, not all of them. In, in the animals that we investigate, if we look at an elderly muscle, we'll find typically that the great majority of the muscle fibres actually look normal and healthy and happy, and a small proportion of them look very, very small. They've shrunk away, uh, in some cases almost to the point that we can't recognise them as muscle fibres. It's a process that we call atrophy. So these are severely atrophied fibres. We believe, actually, that disuse is a primary driver for atrophy. So the question then would be, well, why would a subset of muscle fibres undergo atrophy whilst others look perfectly normal? And the answer to that comes, actually, from the nervous system. So your brain and your nervous system drive your muscles. Your muscles don't do anything of their own volition. They don't do anything of their own. You take the nerve away, you take the brain away, your muscles sit quietly and do nothing. So does every muscle fibre have its own nerve? How does that work? So each muscle fibre receives contact from the nervous system at one point on its length. But each nerve provides the input to many muscle fibres. The point where the the nerve makes contact with the muscle fibres is called a neuromuscular junction. If we look in young animals, every muscle fibre has one neuromuscular junction with a very typical structural form. If we look in old animals, we find small but significant, maybe at any one time, 10% of the muscle fibres would have no nerve on them at all. The nerve is just gone. And others, we see there's a nerve there, but the, the morphology, the shape and the pattern of connection between the nerve and the muscle looks very abnormal. Instead of it forming a coherent joined cluster of connections, it becomes fragmented. So it it looks like a lot of little tiny islands of connection. And those islands are are typical features that are widely described, that we and others have described as as what looks like part of the the typical ageing progression, that a normal neuromuscular junction, the first stage in its deterioration is that it becomes fragmented, and the next stage of deterioration is apparently that the nerve withdraws and that the muscle fibre loses its contact altogether. If that's happening relatively early in this degenerative cycle, as I said, in humans it might be beginning already by age 30, in those early stages, the muscle fibre having lost its contact from its nerve apparently can send out a chemical signal indicating into the environment that it's lost its nerve. And any nearby nerve fibre 
is potentially capable of responding to that chemical signal by growing an extra little sprout out and making a new connection on that muscle fibre and taking it over. And that certainly occurs. There's strong evidence for that. So we get this process that some fibres lose their nerve and then other nearby nerves take over and provide contact with those. The capacity of, of, of nerves to do that is, appears to be limited. They can't continually keep branching and making more and more connections. So as we get older, as more nerves withdraw, increasingly it becomes more likely that there's no nerve in the vicinity that has the capacity to reoccupy that site and the nerve remains denervated. The muscle fibres themselves, to all intents and purposes, are normal. It's just they've got no nerve and they can't be activated. So they undergo what we think is a disuse atrophy. They shrink and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. This brings us to the role our nervous system is playing in all of this. The spinal cord is the central nervous system. You wouldn't necessarily think of it as your brain. I do, actually. I think of your brain as being the brain and the spinal cord. Let's call it the central nervous system. So the, the cells, actually, that, that make direct contact with your muscle fibres, they live in your spinal cord. They don't do much on their own either. They get told by cells that are in your brain, up, up in, your, in your head, when to be activated. So there's a chain of command. And the last nerve step in the chain of command is the nerve cells in the spinal cord. Now, if they were to disappear, any time one of those nerve cells in the spinal cord were to die, then all of the muscle fibres, I said those nerve cells each contact many muscle fibres, then all of those muscle fibres would lose their nerve. A hypothesis would be that nerve cells in the spinal cord are dying in old age, and that would be consistent with the loss of nerves from groups of muscle fibres in the muscle. So the question is, does that occur? And when we look, there's absolutely no doubt at all that between being young and elderly, about 20% of the cells in the spinal cord that make direct contact with muscle fibres and that are responsible for activating muscle fibres, about 20% of those cells die. And that means that on average 20% of the muscle fibres in the muscle will have lost their input. So it's uh, a nerve problem. That's exactly right. A major driver for muscular weakness is nerve deterioration. I look at, uh, in, a, in a muscle and I see degenerating nerve terminals and I think that that's got something to do with old age. But if I saw that in a young animal, I'd say that animal has a disease. It has a, some kind of a muscle-wasting disease. In motor neuron diseases, or ALS as it's called, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is motor neuron disease, and another type of neurodegenerative disease called frontotemporal dementia, which is a dementia that relates to death of nerve cells in a particular part of the brain. In both of those cases, there's a strong genetic component. So there are patients with those diseases that have a family trait. And in that cohort of patients, the defect's been linked to a, a specific chromosome defect, a specific gene. It's called C9-ORF72. It's a defect in the cell's ability to transition important substances between the inside of the cell's nucleus and the cell's cytoplasm. So the nucleus, of course, is where all the genes are located. And so the cell is constantly making new proteins to repair proteins that have outlived their usefulness or, or degraded or damaged in some way. So the, the cell's receiving instructions and responding to those instructions. And so the, the genetic material is enclosed in quite a secure membrane, which is an envelope, which is inside the cell. And it seems that one of these defects is a problem in trafficking either instructions into or 
the first manifestations of those in instructions being enacted out of the nucleus. So this is called nuclear cytoplasmic transport. And for a variety of complicated reason, reasons, that ultimately leads to the death of the cell in these patients that have got this type of motor neuron disease. So we just actually asked the question, well, if that's what's going on in motor neuron disease, I wonder, I wonder whether or not motor neuron disease is an accelerated manifestation of a process that might actually be also be going on in old age. So it's just like a sped-up ageing, maybe? Might be, yeah. So our next challenge is to try to understand what is happening in old age that leads to a dysfunction in that process. And the other little arm of interest that we have is that we know that, that physical exercise is pretty much good for everything, you know, in moderation. Use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. It helps us keep our muscles and keep our strength and our mobility and our independence. It helps with our bone density. And also it helps, you know, there's now evidence emerging uh, rapidly, actually, that it helps with cognitive function as well and preservation of that. And not just in older people, but actually in younger people. And the question then is, does exercise help delay, slow or prevent these degenerative changes that I've just described? So we have some animals that are regularly active, and we look at those too. And their muscles are better, their neuromuscular junctions are better and healthier. The number of nerve cells that die in the spinal cords of animals that are regularly active from middle age to old age is reduced. And the proteins that we think change in old age that contribute to the death of nerve cells in old age they seem to be preserved in animals that are regularly active. So one of the things that exercise is doing to keep muscles stronger is to preserve neuromuscular junctions by preserving motor neurons by delaying or slowing the process that results in the death of motor neurons. What is it that exercise is doing? Well, we know that active muscles make substances called nerve growth factors or neurotrophins in amounts that's proportional to the way that they're used. So a very active muscle makes more of some kinds of nerve support substances than a, than a not very active muscle. So it's uh, a bit like a positive feedback it loop. It is, yeah, it is a feedback thing. And so the use it or lose it phrase actually has a biological basis that muscle fibres actually respond to being used by providing food to the nerve cells that provide their activation. The clear message is is that uh, being active will do things to your nerves and muscles to allow you to be active for longer. The more you do, the more you'll be able to do and the longer you'll be able to do it for. Within reason, of course. I'm not suggesting that anyone should go out and start training for a marathon. And what's interesting is amongst that cohort that have the opportunity to undertake monitored exercise, which is voluntary, we don't enforce it, we just give them the opportunity to be active and if they want to take it, they do. And to a very significant extent, the benefits of activity derive from being busy by just a moderate increase on not being busy. So those who do a little bit get almost as much benefit as those who do a lot. Thanks, Phil. That's Phil Sheard from the University of Otago. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 23rd of August 2018. If you'd like to listen to this story again, check out the photos or read the written feature, the place to go is our webpage 
rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can sign up for our weekly email newsletter there as well, find our contact details, and have a browse through our very large audio archive, which goes back 13 years. It's full of treasures. We are available as a podcast on the RNZ app, and we are RNZ Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Bye for now. Matewa.